After decades of development, James Webb Space Telescope takes flight. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Scientists have been thinking about this moment since the 1990s, a new set of eyes that will see farther into our universe than ever before. The James Webb Space Telescope takes flight this week, an event that has astronomers and scientists on edge. Hundreds of things could go wrong during the deployment with this massive machine, and there's no chance we can fix it if something goes wrong. In its complexity comes its power. We'll talk with NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce about the secrets it aims to unlock and the things it might see once fully deployed. The story of JWST and our quest to see the early beginnings of the universe. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. It has taken many years and billions of dollars to get to this point, but it's finally happening. The James Webb Space Telescope is heading to space. Designed to follow in Hubble's footsteps, the massive observatory will collect infrared light and photons from the earliest days of our universe. Astronomers hope the observatory can unlock the mysteries of the early start of our universe and even peer at planets outside our own solar system. But it took a long time to get to this point. To talk all things JWST, I've invited Nell Greenfield-Boyce to the show. She covers science for NPR and has been keeping a watchful eye on the story of this massive telescope. She joins us now. Nell, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I am so happy to be here. Great to have you here, too. So, Nell, it has been a long road to get to this moment from, from schedule delays to cost overruns. Uh, give us the rundown. When it comes to this launch, how did we get here? Well, I was trying to think back on what was the first James Webb Space Telescope story I did for NPR, and I think it was in 2007. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That was when they had built this, like, scale model of the thing, a full-scale model, and they were bringing it around the country, and they brought it to Washington, D.C., and set it up on the National Mall. So it was like this giant three-story telescope. And, you know, it's this incredible-looking thing. It looks almost like a ray gun. You know, it's Mm -hmm. got this, like, silver kind of trampoline like heat shield that it sits on and it's got this big gold mirror and you know it's 21 feet across I mean it's an incredible item and uh, I remember thinking wow and at the time I thought it was going to launch imminently it's always been like just about (laughs) to launch right like the James Webb Space Telescope they keep saying it's going to launch and keep saying it's going to launch and honestly I think talking with astronomers the planning for this thing goes all the way back before the Hubble Space Telescope launched. So even back then in the late 1980s, they knew that after Hubble, they would want to have another, even better space telescope. And they knew it was going to take a long time to make it. Mm -hmm. And so even way back then, they started planning for it. But I don't think they knew how long it was going to take. In the beginning, they were operating on a budget that was like a billion, a billion and a half dollars. And I bet nobody really believed they could build the thing for that much. But I don't know if they anticipated like just how long it would take and just how much it was going to cost. Mm-hmm. Why, why 
did it take so long and why does it cost so much? I mean, this is an extremely complex machine, right? Well, it's just so big and it needs all these technologies that kind of hadn't been invented, really. You know, it hadn't been tried before. It's very different than any other space telescope or any other telescope that people have tried to launch. And so Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem is at the very beginning when they got this low budget, they would keep running into problems, technical challenges, and then they wouldn't have the money to fix them or the technical challenges would lead to more delays. And so, as you know, the longer it takes to build something, the more expensive it is because you've got all those people and all that time. And so it was this situation where they kept coming back to Congress. NASA kept asking for more money. You know, at one point it was going to cost like two and a half billion and launch in 2014. And then it was over five billion. And the cost kept going up and going up and it kept being delayed. And lawmakers in Congress were like, what is going on? This thing is just, you know, the budget is out of control. The schedule is out of control. And in 2011, they tried to kill it. Like it nearly died. Lawmakers Mm -hmm. in the House of Representatives were like, enough with this already. It just seems like a money sink. And um, it was really touch and go. There were a lot of people in the scientific community who also were a little bit resentful that this telescope was kind of devouring NASA's budget. You know, you saw concerns about that, that like so many billions of dollars were going to this, um, that they worried that, you know, other kinds of science were was being shortchanged. And it was a real battle. It was a political battle. There were like letter writing campaigns. And so finally, you know, around 2011, there was a committee formed, there was a review and you know, it got on a sort of more realistic budget of $8 billion plus and a more realistic schedule of, like, launching in 2018. Well, here we are, 2021. <laughs> it's finally going to launch. They decided the best time to launch it would be, like, three days before Christmas <laughs> when I was technically supposed to be on vacation. But whatever. It's finally going to go. And I think the mood among astronomers I've talked to is just, like, stomach churning terror you know (laughs) that's a good way to put it there's this sense of unreality that this thing they've sort of talked about and heard about for you know their whole careers in some cases you know there were some people who started their phds you know expecting to use james webb space telescope data and it didn't really happen like that and there's people who want to study things who were in elementary school when James Webb was first conceived. And so, like, they've been hearing about it and hearing about it and hearing about it. And it's like, you know, the build is the successor to Hubble. It's going to be the most powerful space telescope ever launched, the most complicated telescope ever put into space. And, like, you know, we're just, like, on the edge. NASA actually put out a video Mm -hmm. called, like, 29 Days on Edge. So NASA isn't exactly (laughs) sending, like, these reassuring messages. It's all very scary. Uh, I mean... It's space now. I mean, you know that this stuff never launches on time, and it always launches on a holiday. <laughs> so, yeah, but come on. Uh, I mean, this thing has been in the works for Christmas. like 30 years. <laughs> well, let's talk about it. You mentioned it's it's been dubbed, you know, Hubble's successor. What makes this telescope so different than anything that has been put in space before? Well, one thing is just the sheer size. It's huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... Mirror, which is um, actually not one solid mirror like in Hubble, but is a segmented mirror. So there's 18 different pieces that have to be aligned to work perfectly as one giant mirror, has six times more area for collecting light. So it can you know, collect much more light than Hubble. 
That means it can see stuff that's farther away. Um, it's also an infrared telescope. So Hubble mostly sees, you know, optical wavelengths of light. That's like what our eyes can see. James Webb Space Telescope is primarily focusing on infrared wavelengths. And that means it can see stuff that's older. So like older galaxies that are, you know, where the light has been traveling for, you know, just almost the entire history of the universe. And it can also Mm -hmm. see through dust. So a lot of the really iconic pictures that people love from Hubble, where you see these like pillars of creation and all these like cool colors, kind of like a lot of that is light bouncing off of dust, which is beautiful. But if you actually want to see what's going on in there, in those stellar nurseries, it's kind of a pain for astronomers. So, mm-hmm. you know, James Webb Space Telescope is going to be able to see stuff that's older. It's going to be able to see stuff that's, you know, obscured by dust. And it needs to operate at these incredibly cold temperatures because mm-hmm. it senses infrared and it can't be, you know, sort of swamped out uh, by the own the heat of the own telescope could swamp out the infrared signals from these faint galaxies. So the telescope itself has to be really, really cold. And like by cold, we're talking like minus 370 degrees Fahrenheit kind of cold. So cold. It's really cold. And, you know, on top of all of that, to fit in a rocket, this huge telescope has to be foldable. It has to be collapsible. And then it has to unfold itself when it's out in space. And it has to do all of that perfectly because it's going to be stationed at a spot like a million miles away. So there will not be any astronaut repair mission to this telescope. Like, I know you recall that when Hubble launched, there was a flaw and it was kind of embarrassing. And there were all these jokes about how Hubble needed glasses. And like, that is not going to happen with James Webb Space Telescope. There's not going to be any second chance here. Everything has to go right. And I think that's why astronomers are so scared. I mean, on the one hand, there's just the fear that the rocket will just like blow up on the launch pad and they'll see everything just vanish in an instant. This $10 billion telescope that took decades to, to make. But then there's also the fear that it could launch perfectly. And then once it's out in space over the weeks when it has to unfold its giant sun shield and its giant mirror, that something will go wrong. And they're just, you know, they won't they won't have any way to fix it. You mentioned that 29 days of being on edge or 29 days of of terror. I mean, there are hundreds of points of failure on this machine, right? I mean, what what, what is the sense that all of them will go right? I mean, should, should we be as nervous as the astronomers now? <laughs> oh, you know, what, you know what they say, space is hard, right? Like, like, I'm sure you've heard that a million times. I mean, I really do think NASA is kind of like playing up the failure here. It's like, you know, they put out that video I mentioned, like 29 days on edge. And it's like, they just like list like all the things that could go wrong, you know, 300 single point failures and all these latches that have to, you know, unhook at the same time and all these pulleys and all these wires. And it's just, it's, (laughs) it's going to be crazy to watch. I mean, I don't think that I have watched anything like this. I mean, the Mars landings, are also nerve-wracking in the sense that at a certain point you're just watching and hoping that it doesn't crash into Mars. But those, you know, terror moments last like minutes. They don't last like days, right? And so here we have just this extended period of tension, um, you know, to make sure the telescope gets to the right place, to make sure that its heat shield 
unfurls. I mean, the heat shield is crazy. It's the size of a tennis court. You know, it's made of this like little crinkly material. It's not the same material that is used for mylar balloons like you'd buy at the grocery store, but it looks like that. And there's five layers. And so this tennis court sized thing has to unfurl perfectly in space and the layers have to separate. And then, you know, the mirror is like got these like segments that have to be sort of like unfolded and then they have to be perfectly aligned to like precision that boggles your mind. Otherwise, the, it, they won't work properly. And so they have tested this on the ground as much as is humanly possible to test it. Like they have just put this thing through the paces and they have like contingency upon contingency and they have replicas on the ground so that if something goes wrong, they can troubleshoot. But at the end of the day, you're still stuck with the fact that it's going to be a million miles away. And so, you know, we just have to wait and see. And that thermal protection, as you mentioned, is so important to this observatory because it has to stay so cool in order to gather that infrared yeah. light. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's a really important aspect of this mission. The infrared light that they want to get, it just thinking about how far and how long that light has traveled through space, it really is astonishing to think about. So, you know, I know you know and your listeners know that light takes time to travel through space. And that means that when you look at things that are very, very far away, you're not seeing them as they are in the present day. You're seeing them as they appeared when the light started its journey, right? So you're effectively looking back in time. And with Hubble, the earliest galaxy we've seen, the light started its journey about 13.4 billion years ago. So that's like very close to the beginning of the universe. And James Webb is going to be able to see stuff that's even older. But if it's not cold, it it's not going to be able to do that. So really... The heat shield is so important. I think people focus on like the size of the, you know, telescope's mirror and other stuff like that, but like if the heat shield doesn't work, it's not going to be the telescope that people want. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE America's Space Station. We're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope with NPR's science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce. Our conversation about the launch of this massive observatory and what astronomers hope to see with it continues after the break. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're talking all things James Webb Space Telescope with NPR's science correspondent, Nell Greenfield-Boyce. Our conversation continues. It's so mind-boggling to think about just how far back into our universe's past this telescope is, is going to look. I mean, what are you've talked to lots of astronomers about this. What are they most excited about for these first observations? What are they going to be studying? What do they what what big questions uh, do they want answered from these observations? Well, I think the the first thing is just what you know. What's the earliest we can see, and what did those 
first stars and galaxies look like. You know, there's this period after the Big Bang where, you know, there's hydrogen and helium and then, you know, the gases start to form into stars and then start to form into galaxies. And those early stars and galaxies changed their environment quite a bit. So they kind of set the stage for all the evolution of the universe that came later. But scientists don't really understand that period. There's a lot of theories about it. But even, you know, what we've seen so far has sort of got people questioning if they really understand how how that went. And so it seems kind of like an esoteric thing, like what do the earliest galaxies look like? But it really is getting at how did we get to this point? How did we get to the point where we can even think about that, where we evolved and like our galaxy formed and our planet formed and all the elements that we're made of were made in stars. And so, you know... After the Big Bang, if you want stuff like, you know, carbon and nitrogen, and oxygen, it's all coming out of these stars. And like that whole period of the universe, it's sort of like newborn stage was so critical to understanding the rest of the history of the universe. So I think that is something that people are really excited about. The other thing that people are really excited about, which is kind of crazy, is they want to use this telescope to study planets outside of our solar system. And, you know, the reason I say it's kind of crazy is that when this telescope was conceived, we hardly knew of any planets outside of our solar system. There were like a few and they were like weird, you know. Now with like other telescopes like TESS and Kepler, scientists have identified something like 5,000 planets outside of our solar system. And so far, we know almost nothing about them. And, you know, because the way we detect them is by looking at how they affect their stars. We don't really see the planet directly. The way we detect them is by seeing their effect on the stars. We don't really see the planet directly. And so already, just using our current telescopes, we've been able to sometimes get some hints about those planets' atmospheres by looking at the starlight that filters through their atmospheres. But James Webb is going to have so much light collecting capacity that it's going to be able to do that for much smaller planets. So like terrestrial sized planets, we're going to be able to get glimpses of what the composition is of the air around that planet, if there is any air. And so some people are saying if you see the right mix of gases, you could maybe say that's like a biosignature, a hint of life. But it's just... To me, it's kind of amazing, and it's an example of how, like, you you sort of try to predict the future and you create a telescope design that's going to be, like, useful, just generally speaking, but you have no idea how it's really going to be used. Like, at the beginning of thinking about the James Webb Space Telescope, no one would have predicted that, like, a huge activity would have been studying planets outside our solar system. That was, like, a, a you know, a, a very niche, niche kind of thing, you know, like... It was not a, a sort of whole field of astronomy, which has sort of emerged in the last 10 years. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that, you know, Hubble looked at images like the Pillars of Creation, which is one of my favorite, you know, astronomy images there. That's kind of dust. And, you know, the point of James Webb is to look through that dust. Will we still get as visually stunning images from this observatory or will this be you know very data focused that only scientists can see the true beauty <laughs> in it there's a lot of what the telescope is going to do that is going to be geared more towards scientists and you know wanting to analyze the light coming from these galaxies to understand you know the chemical makeup and composition 
But there are definitely going to be pretty pictures. Absolutely. There are going to be pretty pictures. And I've been assured this by the astronomers involved. I mean, it's a different kind of telescope. The images are going to be different, but they are still going to be fascinating and beautiful. And all you have to do is look at some of the pictures from other infrared space telescopes, like Spitzer, for example. Um, it's got beautiful pictures, some of which, you know, have been mistaken for Hubble pictures um, because people see a pretty picture and they think, well, it's got to come from Hubble because in the public's mind, Hubble is like, you know, the gold standard for, you know, your cosmic portrait. Um, so it's they're going to look different, but I think that the public is going to be satisfied. NASA will make sure the public is satisfied. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and I'm glad you asked for reassurances, too. So I appreciate that now. Um, the telescope's named after James Webb, who was a government official. He served as NASA's administrator in the 60s. Uh, but there is some controversy over naming the observatory after him. First, can you explain why NASA chose um, Administrator Webb for this and and where the criticism is now over choosing his name for this observatory? So other space telescopes have typically been named after scientists. So like Hubble, Spitzer, um, you know, they're named after astronomers. And this one was sort of unilaterally named after James Webb by another NASA administrator, Sean O'Keefe. And, you know, he had um, uh, served in the Navy and he, you know, where they have a tradition of kind of naming ships. And at the time, the telescope was just being called the Next Generation Space Telescope, and he thought, well, James Webb, the NASA administrator, was, you know, led NASA during a key part of its history and really set up the agency to keep going forward into the future and doing science. And um, he thought this would be a good thing and sort of basically just decided that after talking to some people. And I think some in the scientific community were a little surprised by that at the time, Um but they also were just glad that their telescope had the support of higher ups at NASA. <laughs> and so, like, I don't think at that point they really cared what you called it as long as it kept being developed. So things went along. And then just in the last few years, people, uh, some people have raised concerns that James Webb was in government at a time when government officials were being harassed or fired or purged from government if they were gay or lesbian, the so-called lavender scare. And they basically said that, like, look, you know, James Webb's claim to fame is that he was, you know, an administrator of organizations, but these organizations at the time were acting in discriminatory ways. And so what does it say to people now if you're honoring these figures? And, you know, the the response to that was kind of that, you know, that there's not evidence that James Webb personally was sort of like leading the charge against homosexuals in the government. And NASA actually recently did a review with, you know, a historian of the available archives and the administrator of NASA, Bill Nelson, basically said that after that review, he didn't see anything that would warrant changing the name. And, you know, I think that it still is an issue that kind of um, rankles some people. I mean, there was a science um, uh, division town hall um, and one of the first questions that was asked was about the name situation. Um, I think that people felt like the decision, you know, the evaluation of the evidence, and they just felt like the whole thing was sort of not being dealt with as publicly as they might have liked. And I think NASA feels like they've done the best they can. And it's just that's kind of where things stand unless something changes. And, you know, I think that for some people, especially admirers of James Webb, you know, they're unhappy that this 
um, happened, you know, when this thing's finally nearing launch, it wasn't exactly the kind of headlines they wanted to see about their telescope that people were raising concerns about the name. But I think that, you know, on the other side, some people feel like, you know, we want the naming of the telescope to sort of embody, you know, kind of like our dreams and hopes of the future. And if some members of the community are feeling uncomfortable, um, that makes them uncomfortable. And so I don't know. I've seen some people saying they're just going to call it JWST. Some people have said, you know, it can be, you know, the just wonderful space telescope. You know, some people are just going to call it JWST. Some people have said it'll be just like the just wonderful space telescope. I don't know. I don't know if anything, if there's anything more to come of this or if that has sort of reached its end. Finally, Nell, uh, while I have you, um, <laughs> I I hate to think that there is actually time um on the other side of James Webb Space Telescope, uh, so after JWST, but but what's next? Are there are there plans in the works for the next space based telescope that will succeed James Webb? So just like the planning for James Webb started before the launch of Hubble, planning for the next big telescope is already underway, and um, the astronomy community just did one of their decadal surveys, which is kind of the ten year plan that. Um, you know, the sort of National Academy of Sciences and Engineering and Medicine puts together um, sort of like the consensus of the community about what to do next. And they just came out recently calling for the next giant telescope to be designed specifically to be looking at alien Earths. So the idea is that you would build a telescope that could kind of block out the bright light from a star in order to capture the much dimmer light coming from a small planet that would be orbiting around that star. And you could learn much more about its potential habitability and, you know, what's going on in those planets. And so even as they said that, like, this should be our plan, they were being realistic about when this thing would be ready to go. And they're saying, you know, maybe like 2040. So like in another 20 years, they're saying this thing could launch. And, you know, I'm really hopeful that that happens because my science career, I hope, cr- fingers crossed, has another 20 years. And I would like to cover the launch of a space telescope designed to sp- specifically to look for signs of life on other alien worlds. I think that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have you back on the show in 20 years uh, to talk about it. <laughs> Excellent. Ho- hopefully have you on before then as well, Nell. Nell greenfield Boyce is an NPR science correspondent. She's been covering the development and launch of JWST. Nell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy watching the launch and have a great new year. I'll link some of Nell's reporting as well as some other great pieces about JWST on our website. Visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet. And coming up next week, a conversation with Paul Dye, NASA's longest serving flight director, about the immense responsibility in NASA's Mission Control Center and the role trust plays in keeping our astronauts safe. We'll also talk about his new book, Shuttle Houston. That's next week here on Are We There Yet? Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed any part of our conversation, listen back online or be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts or visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.